please turn with me to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. The book of Colossians, chapter 2. And as you are finding your way there, I want to describe for you six scenes, situations. They might seem initially unrelated, disjointed, but they actually share in reality a common denominator, six scenes. Let me preface these scenes um, with a remark or two. I know most of you, I know most of you fairly well, but there are some I don't know so well, and there are undoubtedly a few visitors here uh, today. And so let me preface the six scenes I'm going to describe, uh, begging you, because I don't know where everyone's coming from, but begging you, pleading with you to um, stay with me. If something strikes you as odd, or if I push the wrong button, or maybe the right button, but I push a button, don't turn off. Stay with me, and hear me out, and hear me through to the end. I ask that of you. And so here's the first scene. I'm browsing the books at Barnes & Noble, downtown Fort Worth. Here's what I see. Proof of heaven, a neurosurgeon's trip into the afterlife. My journey to heaven, what I saw and how it changed my life. Heaven is for real. A little boy's astounding story of his trip to heaven and back. 90 minutes in heaven, a true story of death and life. To heaven and back, a doctor's extraordinary account of death heaven, angels, and life again. Waking up in heaven, a true story of brokenness, heaven, and life again. Nine days in heaven, the vision of Marietta Davis. Forty days in heaven, the true testimony of Seneca Saudi's visitation to paradise. Flight to heaven, a plane crash, a lone survivor, a journey to heaven and back. Something a little different. 23 minutes in hell, a man's story about what he saw, heard, and felt in that place of torment. So I'm in Barnes & Noble, I'm in the religious section, and this is what I see. And it's only the tip of the iceberg. I could mention a lot more. Scene number two. I'm listening to a preacher on television, and here's what he says. Many Christians incorrectly believe that everything God wants us to know has already been revealed in the Bible. This preacher claims to receive fresh words of revelation from God all the time. He explains that God is seeking to establish dominion over the earth through the help of overcomers who submit to the authority of God's modern-day apostles. These apostles have direct contact with the spirit realm. There is a unity between these apostles and angelic beings, thereby creating a link by which revelations are conveyed. These revelations are essential for guiding the church in its mission to establish God's dominion over the earth. Okay, we turn off the television, 
That's scene number two. Scene number three. I'm participating in a missions trip. I'm with 30 people I've just met. We're traveling by bus from Belgium to Hungary. It's going to be a long journey. As we leave the parking lot, a woman jumps to her feet in the front of the bus and starts praying. She thanks God for the angels riding on top of the bus. Her hope is that her fervent prayer will impart the necessary energy to these angels so that they're able to ward off those demons that want to wreck our bus. Later, another woman near the back of the bus is distraught. Her friend has been speaking in angel talk for some months, but she herself hasn't received this gift from the Lord. She's perplexed as to what she's doing wrong. She's perplexed as to why God would withhold this gift from her. She's perplexed as to what it means about her spirituality. She's perplexed as to the fact that she obviously isn't a spirit-filled woman. And she's becoming increasingly apoplectic. Scene number four, I'm attending a small group Bible study. The text is Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The man to my left says he feels this verse is one of the reasons why we should have smaller churches. Christ's presence isn't felt as strongly in a group of 200 as it is in a much smaller gathering. The woman to my right says she feels this verse really means we need to give more attention to what Christ is saying when we're gathered together. There should be more time for quiet reflection and contemplation. The man across from me is teary-eyed. He wants to know if this verse means that Christ isn't with him when he's all alone. Finally, the group leader chimes in. He informs the group that the verse is actually about church discipline. Immediately. A woman cuts him off, saying she just doesn't feel right in her spirit about this subject because the church is so judgmental. That kills any meaningful interpretation of the text. But for the next half an hour, the group has a wonderful time of sharing what the text means to each of them. Here is scene number five. I'm sitting under a willow tree beside a beautiful pond. The temperature is perfect. There's a gentle breeze, birds are chirping, bees are buzzing, ducks are quacking, a turtle is sunning itself on a log. I'm going to pray. But rather than speak, I'm going to wait for God to speak to me. Close my eyes. Allowing nature to surround me and overwhelm me, I wait. I peek at my watch. Five minutes have passed. I wait some more. Then it happens. I have a feeling. I have a feeling. No, it has nothing to do with the three burritos I ate for breakfast. I can tell the difference. I have a feeling. God is letting me know how much he cares for me. This is wonderful. I feel a peace I've never felt before. God has just shown me, proved to me that he is real. Now here is scene number six. I'm counseling a man who says the spirit is leading him to leave his wife. He knows he has no grounds for divorce, but God has shown him that in this case, it's the right thing to do. It'll be best for everyone in the long run. He'll be in a better position to get involved in ministry and serve the Lord. To top it all off, he'll be much happier. Besides, God is sovereign, and God can bring good from evil. 
I attempt to turn his attention to what Scripture actually says about this subject, but he shoots me down. He assures me that he knows what the Bible says, but his situation is unique. His situation is different. His situation is exceptional. He tells me I need to step out of my little world and understand what great things God is going to accomplish through this divorce. Everybody still here? Nobody got up and walked out? Six scenes, situations. I could come up with umpteen more. Umpteen, is that a word? Umpteen more. A bunch more. Uh, They're very diverse, aren't they? They seem to be completely unrelated, but they all have one common denominator, mysticism, or what I like to call Gnostic spiritualism. Gnostic spiritualism. What do we mean by mysticism? What is this common common denominator that runs through each of these scenes, each of these scenarios, each of these situations? Mysticism. I've given you a definition. It's right there in the, uh, in the sermon notes, in your bulletin, top of the page, the thread of mysticism. There's our text, Colossians 2, 18 and 19. And here's my working definition of mysticism, Gnostic spiritualism. Mysticism is the belief that we can attain, reach to, experience, an immediate knowledge of God in this life, through personal experience. Let me read it again. Mysticism is the belief that we can attain an immediate knowledge of God. So we can know God, and we can know God's will, and uh, we, can, we can grow in our appreciation, not merely our knowledge, but our appreciation, and therefore in our relationship with God in this life, apart from what he has revealed in his word. I'm not saying that's completely irrelevant. No, it's there. But we can actually attain an immediate knowledge. Revelation isn't always necessary for this. In this life, through personal experience. That is what each of those scenes uh, have in common. And that is our theme for today, the threat of mysticism. Um, American evangelicalism is drowning in mysticism. It's not merely out there. It's not merely popular. It's not merely a fad. I'll repeat what I just said. American evangelicalism is drowning in mysticism. It's not, merely, it's not even up for debate. It is a given. And it is the assumption with which most professing Christians operate and function in our day. Why is that? Why are so many Christians attracted to it? Let me give you five reasons. I'll try to go through these quickly. You're going to get a lot of numbers this morning. You just had six scenes. And here are five reasons why this Gnostic spiritualism uh, is so attractive. Number one, it sounds good. That's number one. It sounds good. It sounds great. Who wouldn't want to hear directly from God? Who wouldn't want to be, in italics, closer to God? Who isn't looking and longing for something exceptional, something extraordinary, something spectacular? It just looks good, sounds good. 
Here's the second reason. We place far too much emphasis on our feelings. Uh, We want to be moved, right? We want to be inspired. We want to be stirred. We want that feeling, you know, that sort of feeling of electricity when the emotions are charged. Almost giving is a buzz. We, We long for it. We yearn for it. We pursue it. Uh, you know, the feelings moved, stirred, engaged. All I have to do is, uh, is listen to music in a minor key, right? And my emotions, they're stirred. I get that electric feeling. Or uh, all I need to do is, is uh, watch a good sunset when there are a few clouds on the horizon And you see those colors that you can't even name, you can't even describe, and the feelings, you get it. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, there it is, that feeling. Or if you watch a good film, read a good book in which there is tension, right? And the protagonist has all of these obstacles in his way, in her way, that that the hero must overcome. And there's that tension throughout, and it's an engaging story, and you are engaged emotionally. Or I watched Canada beat the U.S. in hockey on Friday morning. You knew it was coming. And my emotions are, they're stirred. That, we, we long for that. We want our emotions to be charged. We want our emotions to be moved, stirred, and inspired. Here's the problem. We bring that desire into the realm of religion. And when we bring that desire into the realm of religion, we fail. I fail to keep in view the difference between emotions and affections. Hmm. The difference between emotions and affections. Love is an emotion. It's also an affection. Desire is an emotion. It's also an affection. Joy is is an emotion. It's also an affection. Fear is an emotion. It's also an affection. So... Why in some instances is love an emotion, but in other instances an affection? Why is hatred in some instances merely an emotion, but in other instances an affection? What makes the difference? The affections are always, always, always stirred through knowledge. Affections are always engaged through truth. By the Spirit of God, we comprehend God's truth as He reveals it in His Word. And as that light dawns upon our minds, it engages our hearts, our affections, whereby they respond. These aren't merely emotions. Emotions can be stirred by all sorts of stimuli. But affections can only be moved by truth. This is why singing is such a problem for some of us. I struggle with this. If the song hits the right notes, my emotions are stirred. We could be singing, Old MacDonald Had a Farm, E-I-O, E-I-O, etc., 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 etc. It wouldn't make any difference. As long as the music hits the right notes, it peaks my emotions, I'm worshiping God. No, my friends. Affections. Yes, love, desire, delight, joy, these affections. When emotions become affections, it is because truth has dawned upon the soul. And yet we fall, we face that peril constantly in our journey. 
because we so desperately want our emotions to be engaged, we bring that desire into the realm of religion, and therefore we crave what? Anything and everything that will tweak our emotions, we crave what? An experience. This immediate experience of God, this, this, this experience, this event, that somehow becomes emotionally charged, giving me, transferring to me that which I so long for, so desire, that is my emotions to be engaged. Here's the third reason why mysticism is so attractive. We want a quick fix. We're looking for an extraordinary event or an extraordinary experience that will alter the course of our lives. We want a quick fix. There's Peter, James and John, but we'll just focus on Peter. There he is, walks up the mountain, and he's on the mountain. He has the experience of all experiences. This is the mother of all experiences. The Lord Jesus is transfigured right before him, and there is a blinding bright light. And then this cloud descends engulfing the mountain. It's the Shekinah glory, the dwelling presence of God. And then to top things off, as if that weren't enough, there's an audible voice. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I'll tell you, oh, I stand before you. If God would give me an experience like that, I'd be a different man. If God would just do something like that in my life, oh, the zeal, I would just bubble over. If God were to give me an experience like that, you know, I don't think I'd ever sin again. An experience like that would overwhelm me. An experience like that would transform me. An experience like that would solve all my problems. Except this. What did it do for Peter? Within a short period of time, he's denying the Lord Jesus on the very night in which he was betrayed. Oh, my friends, do not be duped by the experience. Do not be duped by this idea there's a quick fix. Well, many of us would rather take a pill than exercise. Many of us would rather undergo surgery than change our lifestyle. Many of us would rather pursue an experience than discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. We want a quick fix. Here's the fourth reason. We err in our thinking. David Wells wrote, maybe 15, 20 years ago, people who are attracted to mysticism assume that what is hidden in God is other than what is revealed, or that it is deeper, or that it is more interesting, or that it is more spiritually nourishing. It's a false assumption. It's an error in thinking that what is hidden is better than what God has revealed. What is hidden is more exceptional than what is revealed. What is hidden is more engaging than what is revealed. No, God has revealed everything he intends to reveal. God has revealed everything he intends for us to know. And he has provided that revelation in his word. But here is the error that gets the mind of the mystic in its clutches, that know that, that there's something else. 
There is something larger, there is something greater, there is something better. And if I could only get tapped into it, it would make all the difference in my life. And now let me give you a fifth reason why mysticism is so attractive. We are the children of the age in which we live. We are the children of the age in which we live. Step back a few centuries, 1700s, and the West is overrun by a philosophical movement known as the Enlightenment. Well, the Enlightenment means many things, but for our purposes, for what I I want us to grasp, the Enlightenment means this, that when it comes to asking the big questions in life, what is true? How do you know something is true as opposed to false? What is real? How do you know something is, is really real? What is good? How do you determine what is good versus bad? The Enlightenment, when it comes to answering those questions, the Enlightenment affirmed what? That man is sufficient to answer those questions. We no longer need God to answer those questions. We no longer need, require the absolutes of God's word to determine the answers to those big philosophical questions. What is true? What is real? What is good? No, you see, man is at the center of reality. Man is the determining factor in what is truth. And so Western society plunged into what is called rationalism. Rationalism proved bankrupt. And in our day, it has been replaced by what? Emotionalism. And so when people today, by and large in our society, when people today answer those questions, what is true, what is real, what is good, the determining factor in answering those questions is what? How they feel. I I feel that's true. Therefore, it is true. I, I feel that that's good. Therefore, it is good. I was watching one Olympian this past week, having completed the competition, uh, just acknowledging a friend who had passed away several years ago and celebrating the fact that this friend was there with her, present. How do you know? I feel it. Nobody challenges. Nobody dares contradict. Well, if that's what you think, if that's what you believe, if that's what you feel, then that is your truth. That is your reality. And even within the church, we are not immune to the age in which we live. If we think we are, we're naive. Even many of us as Christians, when it comes to answering those key questions, what is true, what is real, what is good, they fall back on what? Well, what do I feel? What do I feel about that? And so feelings have become the measure of reality. Feelings have become the measure of truth. Feelings have become the measure of goodness. And we see that spilling over within evangelicalism, making people susceptible to mysticism, Gnostic spiritualism, the belief that we can attain an immediate knowledge of God in this life through personal experience. Now, the Apostle Paul addresses this head-on in Colossians chapter 2. He addresses it in two verses, verses 18 and 19. Follow along as I read them. 
And listen carefully as I pause in certain places, hoping, hoping you can pick up on his thought flow. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. I'm going to insert a word here, being puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. And so Paul begins this little section, these two verses with a command. Right at the outset of verse 18, let no one disqualify you. The word, the verb, literally refers to an umpire, to umpire. And so Paul wasn't thinking about this, but we can think about baseball, the umpire standing behind home plate, or the umpire in the chair, the chair at a tennis match, or a referee in hockey or soccer, someone who is making a judgment call. That is his point here. It actually parallels what he said back in verse 16. Let no one pass judgment on you. And so put verses 16 and 17 over here. Let no one pass judgment on you. There he's thinking primarily of legalism. And now we have a parallel passage, verses 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you. It's essentially the same commandment. Let no one pass judgment on you. And he no longer primarily has legalism in view, but he has mysticism in view. And having given that commandment, here we go with the grammar, let no one disqualify you. He provides four modifying clauses. And so four clauses which modify, which explain, expand on the people he's thinking of in verse 18. He has an individual in view, or he has a group in view. Don't let them pass judgment on you. Don't let them act like your umpire. Don't let them qualify you. Here's who I'm thinking of. Four modifying clauses. Here's the first. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. That's the first modifying clause. Here's the second, going on in detail about visions. It's actually a participle in the Greek. Here's the third, being puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And here's the fourth, into verse 19, and not holding fast to the head. Now let me just go through these, expand on each briefly. Here's the first description of this man, this woman, this group, this movement that will seek to disqualify you. Here it is. He's delighted in what he does. That's the first modifying clause. He is delighted in what he does, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Asceticism is a big word. It's coming next Lord's Day because the Apostle Paul returns to that in verse 20. For now... For our purpose this morning, simply understand that this individual whom the Apostle Paul has in view is a person who thinks, a person who assumes that there are certain things he can do that are within his power, whereby he will attain to a higher level of spirituality. What is this higher level of spirituality? Paul tells us. This individual insists on asceticism, here it is, and worship of angels. Grammatically, that can mean one of two things. 
If I simply say to you the love of God, what am I talking about? I might be speaking of our love for God, the love of God. Or I might be referring to God's love toward us. Same thing here. Worship of angels. It could mean one of two things. He could be referring to their actual worship of angels. That in some way they've deified these angels. They're now worshiping them. Or I think far more likely, I think this is what Paul has in view. It is, no, the angels worship. And so this man, seeking to disqualify you, He insists on asceticism, these spiritual practices, these things that he has bought into whereby he thinks he will attain to a higher level of spirituality that is a level of spirituality that is equivalent to the angel's worship. In other words, he's leaving this world. He's going somewhere else. He has risen above the mundane. He has elevated above the normal. And he is now into the realm of the spectacular and the exceptional. He's on a higher plane. He's on a different level. The actual, actual angels worship. And he is delighted in what he does. The second description is this. He's committed to what he sees going on or insisting in detail about visions. Because you see, when he finds himself in this state through his ascetic practices, whatever it is he's adopted, whatever it is he thinks he can do in order to have this immediate personal experience with God, and so whereby he enters into this higher realm of spirituality, which can only be described as the angel's worship, in that experience, as he engages in that and experiences it, he actually partakes in what? Visions. He sees things. He hears things. This is what he's craving. This is what he's longing for. This is what he is always pursuing. This is what he is insisting on. He is committed to what he sees. Thirdly, he is inflated by what he experiences. Right at the end of verse 18, being puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. It's a vicious cycle, circle. This, I mean, it, it was just spectacular. You can just picture this guy. This was uh, spectacular what I experienced. Tremendous what I heard, what I think I saw. Unbelievable. I now have this immediate access to God whereby he reveals himself to me by way of personal experience. And the more this individual experiences this, the more puffed up he becomes in his mind. And the more he defines himself and defines his spirituality on the basis of these experiences. And the more he is confronted, the more he resists. The more anyone takes him to task, the deeper he digs his heels in. He will not be moved. Have you ever met anybody like this? I've met lots of them. I had an experience. Really? You probe it a little. You try to think it through in the light of Scripture. And the individual adopts Martin Luther. Here I stand. I will not be moved. I've had an experience. And they begin to define themselves spiritually by this. And the sensuous mind loves it. Why? Because it sets me apart from the crowd. Right? Sets me just one tier above everyone else. It means I'm that much closer to God. It means I must be 
special in some way that, that I've entered into this, I've experienced this, other people haven't. And so he is inflated by what he experiences. And then the fourth modifying clause gives us a fourth description of these individuals, disconnected from what he needs. And so delighted in what he does, committed to what he sees, inflated by what he experiences, and disconnected from what he actually needs. The outset of verse 19, not holding fast to the head. Capital H, it's Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Four things. I told you I had a lot of numbers this morning. Four things you want to grasp to make sense of what is a rather convoluted verse, isn't it? What, is, what does that mean? First glance, the word gibberish comes to mind. What's he saying? And so, and so hone in. Give it your attention. Think in terms of building blocks. And so I have a building block here, plunk. And I get the cement, slop it on top, a second building block, more cement on top, a third building block, more cement on top of that one, a fourth building block. Are you with me? We're going to look at four building blocks as we come to terms with what Paul is saying in this verse. The first building block is is this. Paul tells us a great deal about a body, physical body. We all have bodies here this morning, soul and body. There's a lot to say. This is the first building block upon which we need to build. And so there it is on the ground. What does Paul say about the body, the physical body in this verse? First he tells us the body is knit together through its joints and ligaments. Okay. I did grade 10 biology, grade 11. Can't remember. I've tried to blank it from my mind. It was high school. I know that. And so drawing on my expertise in biology, anatomy, uh, ligaments and joints. I've got an elbow joint. There it is. And so this bone coming down here, a little bit of a groove in there. This bone coming up here, there's a bit of a knob. And both are very smooth. And the one fits into the other. No friction. It just moves around wonderfully, right? And then joining the bone to the bone, there are ligaments. And so tissue, fiber, tightly woven together, which join bone to bone. There are tendons. Uh, more of those fibers joining bone to muscle. And so that's what's going on in my wrist. It's what's going on in my elbow, my shoulder, my hip, my knee, my ankle. You have these joints, these bones that just fit perfectly together and are bound together, tied together by these ligaments. So Paul makes that point here. Second thing he tells us about the body is this. It's nourished from the head. It's energized from the head. It's empowered from the head. And so here's my hand. What did I just do? I just moved my finger. How did I do that? I have nerves in my finger. And these nerves attach to other nerves that run up through my arm into my spine where they join with main nerves which run all the way up my spinal column to my brain. And what do I do? I simply think a thought. There goes my finger. There goes my wrist. There goes my elbow. There goes my shoulder. Evolution is a wonderful thing, by the way. Just a little bit of sarcasm there. And so we have my, my mind, a thought, simply giving out an impulse, energy. And this energy runs down from my brain, through my spinal column, these major nerves, down through the nerves, going through my arms, all the way out to the exterior of my little finger, and there it goes. Simply because I'm thinking in my mind, and these pulses go out of energy through the entire nervous system. And then the third thing Paul says about the body is this. It grows when everything functions properly. 
So when everything is knit together as it should be, and when that nervous system is functioning properly, you put it in the cardiovascular system and the blood is pumping, then the body functions as it should and it grows. Some of you are having fond memories now of biology class back in high school. There you have it. That's building block number one if we want to make sense of what Paul's saying. Now, slap some cement on there. You get the second block, put it on top. Here's what we must understand. What is true in the physical realm is true in the spiritual realm. That's his point. What is true in the physical realm is true in the spiritual realm. And so there is a spiritual body. We've moved away now from our physical bodies to a spiritual body. Spiritual body is the church. This building, my friend, is not the church. People are the church. And we are knit together, joints and ligaments. We fit perfectly together and we're bound together by the Holy Spirit making up this spiritual body. Not simply a bunch of different things strapped together by a belt or a rope unwillingly. No, but something that fits together as a body perfectly, smoothly, effortlessly. And it's all tied together with these ligaments. And just as with a physical body, this spiritual body receives its nourishment, its spiritual life, its power from where? The head, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't move spiritually apart from him. We don't grow spiritually apart from him. He is the head, therefore he is the origin of all life, therefore he is the origin of all strength. He is that spiritual energy, if you like, by which the body moves and functions properly. And when it does move and function properly, what's the result? The spiritual body grows with a growth that is from God. Okay, you got building block number two, nobody's going to knock that over. Grab some cement, slop it on top. Here is the third building block, the mystic is guilty of decapitation. Don't be horrified. That's what Paul says. The mystic is guilty of decapitation. I just finished a book on 15th, 16th century England, the Tudors. Everybody and their grandmother being decapitated. Henry VIII and all these other ones. I've got images going through my mind, I'll tell you. That's what's going on here. Not holding fast to the head. The mystic is cutting himself off from the head. The mystic, by insisting, going on in details about visions, the mystic, by thinking he's got this these procedure, this system by which he can enter into this higher tier of worship, this mystic who is puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, he has actually cut himself off from the only source of true spiritual growth. He thinks he's growing. He thinks he's something. He thinks this is wonderful. He thinks this is spectacular. But in reality, he is guilty of decapitation. He has cut himself, removed himself from the head. Now take the fourth building block and put it right on top. And here it is. If this is true, if what Paul says in this true, then he is true. Then here is what is of paramount importance. I must, above all things, hold fast to the head. Isn't that obvious? Above all things, if I want to grow spiritually, if I want to grow in holiness, grow in godliness, then here is what I must do. Put away legalism. Put away mysticism. Put away asceticism. It's coming next Lord's Day. And I must hold fast to the head. 
How do I do that? Paul has already told us. Verses 6 through 7 are almost the unifying thought, if you like, throughout this chapter. There he writes, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, the idea of a tree growing, built up, the idea of an edifice in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. From our vantage point, nothing very exceptional about that. Nothing particularly spectacular about that. But here's the truth. The head has provided the means by which we hold fast to him. And we hold fast to him through what he has revealed in Scripture. We hold fast to the, fast to the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. We pursue it as individuals. We pursue it as families. We pursue it corporately. And as we hold to the word, as we remain grounded upon the word, as we are fed through the word, and as our faith is strengthened and nourished, we grow up because we're holding fast to the head. We grow up in that growth which is from God. Now quickly, let me try to apply that to uh, all of that to three groups of people. And so firstly... Dare I? Yes, I dare. Let me try to apply this um, to the individual who is committed to personal experience. Uh, The individual who is committed to that tenet, that foundation of mysticism, that I can attain immediate knowledge of God in this life through personal experience. Let me address that individual with a brief quote from J.I. Packer. Here's what he wrote. Those whom I call restless experientialists are a familiar breed. So much so that observers are sometimes tempted to define evangelicalism in terms of them because it's become so commonplace. Their outlook is one of valuing strong feelings, note the words, not affections, strong feelings above deep thoughts. They have little taste for solid study disciplined meditation, and unspectacular hard work in their callings and in their prayers. In their restlessness, these exuberant ones become uncritically credulous, reasoning that the more odd and striking an experience, the more divine, the more supernatural, and the more spiritual it must be. They have fallen victim to a form of worldliness, a man-centered, anti-rational individualism. So I beg of you, if the shoe fits, ponder what the Apostle Paul says in these verses. Ponder what it means to really grow in the Lord Jesus Christ, availing ourselves of the means that He has granted to us. Holding firm to this unshakable foundation that God has spoken through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and He has revealed to us, He has given to us everything we need for godliness. The second group of people I want to speak to is that believer, that Christian, 
laboring, striving to grow in godliness. And just a word of exhortation to hold fast to the head. When we hold fast to the Lord Jesus, the result is maturity. When we avail ourselves of those means that the head has provided for our spiritual growth, those means through which the Holy Spirit works and functions in our lives, the result is maturity. The result is stability. Maturity, meaning a full head, knowledge, and a full heart, affections. A Christian with a full head and empty heart is like a four-year-old flying a plane, a recipe for disaster. A Christian with a full heart and empty head is like a 40-year-old riding a tricycle, a cause for concern. The third group I want to address as we conclude today are any unbelievers in our midst. Uh, I've taken you on quite a journey this morning and spoken of some interesting things and perhaps some perplexing things. But my friend, if you're not a believer, here's what you must grasp. There is a head and there is a body. It is the church. And God has appointed only one means of salvation, and it is this. We must be united to the head. That is, we must become members in the body of Christ. We become members of the body of Christ, united to the head through two means. There are two knots, if you like, two bonds that knit us together. The first is this, Christ by the Holy Spirit must take hold of you. It is the Spirit that unites you to Christ. And when the Spirit unites us to Christ, we then take hold of Him through faith. We repent of our sin. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so by virtue of these two things, tying us together, knitting us together, we're now one with Christ. There's a head and there's a body. Do you know what that means? Because we're one with him. It means that everything the Lord Jesus accomplished in his life, the perfect life he lived, and in his death and his burial and his resurrection, everything he accomplished, is now applied to those who are one with him. And so I'm one with the Lord Jesus. He's taken hold of me by the Holy Spirit. I've taken hold of him by faith. That means his death, his burial, and resurrection, they're now mine. And that means my sin has been judged in the Lord Jesus. And the penalty of my sin has been paid in full upon Calvary's cross. I'm in the Lord Jesus. You know what that means? I'm now clothed with a righteousness that is not my own. God requires me to be perfectly righteous in his sight. I am now righteous in His sight because I am one with His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, because I'm one with the Lord Jesus, I'm now part of a family. I'm adopted in this family. I now have a new status. And all of the blessings of sonship in the family of God are now mine by virtue of this union with Christ. And because of the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, I have this pledge. I know I have been sealed for the day of redemption. And I have this pledge that all of these things that are mine now, positionally in Christ, I know the day is coming when they will be mine fully in practice. I know a day is coming when I will enter into and fully enjoy all that is now mine right now by virtue of my union with Christ. I am seated with Him in the heavenly places. And God has blessed me with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I'm part of His body. I'm united to the head. 
He has hold of me by the Holy Spirit. I have hold of him by faith. And so I have this pledge. I have this down payment. I have this assurance that he will make good on everything he has purchased for me. He will make good on everything he has accomplished for me. He will make good. He will deliver everything he has promised to me. My friend, are you in Christ? Do you know what it means to be knit together with the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know what it means to be born again by the Spirit of God united to Christ? And is your faith, are you resting? Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone as the only suitable Savior of sinners? Our Father, as we conclude this morning, As always, we seek your blessing upon your word. As always, we pray that your spirit would accompany the preaching of your word, accompanying it with power, that it might do a good work in each of us gathered here today. We praise you for the Lord Jesus. We praise you for that great work of redemption which he accomplished and finished at Calvary's cross. And we praise you for the glories of the gospel that there is salvation for all those who trust and rest in Christ as Savior. And so again, we pray that you would come this day, take what we have heard, uh, impart understanding where there is confusion, impart a softened heart where there is a hardened heart, and we pray that you would impart a broken will where there is a stubborn will. We ask this for your glory. We ask it for the furtherance of your kingdom. And we seek it from you in the name of Christ. Amen.